Hello and welcome back to Nourishing Matters to Chew On. I'm sorry for the long break, I've, but I am delighted to be back with this episode, which is a panel discussion from a fantastic conference, Transformations Partnerships for a Better World, that was recently held between UTS, Portland and Prague. And in this panel, this episode, I speak with four amazing food systems uh, researchers from UTS who are doing amazing work and it's just a sensational conversation. Please listen in, please enjoy. Looking back a decade and from where we've come to look forward a decade, what would be the one one or two great potential, great potentialities that you see in your sphere that you think we could have realised? Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On. I'm Anthea Fawcett. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I think we might as well get, um, kick off after that brilliant plenary. I don't know if any of you were here for it, but um, to hear from Dr Anne Paulina, what a complete privilege and honour that was. So, um, I, I, my name's Anthea. Uh, Yama, and welcome to this panel discussion in which we're digging in to discuss food systems and pathways for transformation of them in a world that, as all of us know, is already disrupting pretty much everything. I'd like to kick off kick off by further acknowledging um, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, upon whose ancestral lands this campus stands. Um, I think we're all in awe of Indigenous knowledge and culture and, I, and just to reiterate what a brilliant, uh, inspiring session uh, we've just had the privilege of listening to with Anne Paulina. Um, so I'd like to acknowledge all Elders past, present and emerging um, as the traditional custodians of knowledge for this land. And I'd also like to pay tribute to and celebrate all First Peoples of and from wherever you may be joining us, because I think we are streaming, aren't we? Um, as custodians of culture and country where they are, and to thank them and all First Peoples in Australia for their resilience and for their deep compassion and generosity in sharing their wisdom and care for Mother Earth, um, just aptitudes that are just so vital for all of our futures, as I think we're all so well aware. As I said, I'm, I'm Anthea Fawcett. I'm a long-standing friend, friend and adjunct at the ISF. Um, Cynthia Mitchell is a, a dear friend and colleague over, over decades. Um, I, and I'm also the host of Foodswell's podcast, which is called Nourishing Matters to Chew On, and that this discussion will feature on as a special episode in a few weeks. Um, I come to this discussion wearing bowbird feather caps uh, that include food security with remote uh, Indigenous communities in Australia over a decade. I grew up on a farm in the 1970s that was pretty much a poster plot for the Green Revolution <laughs> and now it is an organic broadacre family farm in a sea of large-scale large, large scale agribusiness and it's also near the Pilliga. I'm from Narrabri, so uh, all the more reason for why last session uh, just really struck home with me. Um, I have a background in climate policy, advocacy and renewable energy startups and my current day job focuses on enabling nature positive transformations, much in the lingo of big business these days. So let me more importantly introduce and welcome our panellists. Associate Professor Dana Cordell, the beautiful lady on the screen, is joining us from home because she and her little boy are not feeling 100%. So Dana, thank you so much for joining us. 
Um, Dr. Federico de Villa, uh, Research Principal Fiona Berry, and Anya Bless, um, Anya Bless, closest to me, who is a PhD candidate. And they are all eminent researchers with UTS. Uh, their respective research contributes at vital intersections in food policy and food and resource security, spanning phosphorus futures, governance and sustainability in Australasian and Pacific Island food systems, peri-urban and local food systems, and the politics of regenerative agriculture, which is uh, bountiful and abundant uh, and, and burgeoning. Um, rather than further introduce or even try to describe the richness of their work, um, can I ask you to please see each of their bios on the app, which has much more detail about their backgrounds and so forth than the published program. Um, and more importantly, enjoy hearing from them in this discussion. And please consider your specific questions or, or, or uh, that you might have for the panel or for individuals on it. We're hoping to have about 20 minutes for questions at the end. Okay, some context, food systems. Let's get that next slide up, beautiful. Now, I could just sit here and meditate for a minute or two and just let you take the slide in. That would probably be much more informative than me uh, wandering on. <laughs> so what are we talking about when we talk about food systems? Well, of course, we all eat. We're all embedded in and shaped by food systems with every meal. As Dr. Martin Luther King said, before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you've depended on more than half of the world. Now, curiously, that quote is from the Secretary-General's Chair Summary and Statement on Action on the UN Food Systems Summit that was held in September 21. And that was an event that called for transformative, multi-level action and inclusion to address what he said, what he described as epic challenges to our food system and planet, a system that's long challenged social and environmental justice. And if we think of Dr. Martin Luther King, think of the history of slavery, and its deep roots in the addictive sugar trade and the many ongoing legacies that stem from that on human and planetary health and justice. Our food systems incorporate and span across local to global food production and supply chains. They incorporate labour relations, skills and knowledge transfer, regulatory marketing and distribution systems, food environments and the consequent possible or not possible food choices they make possible, along with equity, health, nutrition and environmental impacts. And all of those things are generated within and across the whole picture commencing from the different types of production systems possible that, you know, historically from artisanal, agroecological to high input industrial agriculture and all of the resource, land use patterns, land clearing and waste making systems within the system, if you like, that these entail. <laughs> okay. Um, so where to begin or focus? Do you focus on transitions at the niche, regime or landscape level? Is it a continuum of reform towards transformation? Is that viable? And if so, at what pace? Or do we need to set out much more dramatically in the here and now for, for a form of revolution of sort? There are so many messy, 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 messy intersections and nodes for change. If we really want to truly value the resources and ecosystems that make food and indeed life possible. Apologies to anyone who, to whom this is all, you know, uh, well-known material, but I just thought it might be handy to have a few scene setters in terms of, you know, big punchy facts on hunger. The world was doing really well on hunger up until recently. But with COVID and the war in Ukraine, um, those events have put adverse trends on overdrive. Up to 811 million people in the world faced hunger in 2020, and that's a 20% increase in just one year, and things aren't getting dramatically better. And obesity and malnutrition, counterintuitively, too frequently coexist. On land use... Over 60% of all wildlife populations have been lost since the 1970s and land clearing for industrial and other agricultural crops and beef production is directly implicated in this. 
Over a quarter of the land on Earth is now so degraded that the soils cannot grow food. And back-to-back -back extreme events are driving further desertification and land degradation, reducing our productive capacity and footprint. On food waste, if a nation, food waste would rate number three behind China and the US as the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter. On climate, food production is both a driver of and at the receiving end of climate impacts. Food systems contribute up to one third of greenhouse gas emissions and use up to 70% of fresh water. Globally, we already grow enough food to feed 10 billion people. The problem is how it's produced, distributed and wasted. On power and hyper-consolidated interests, some 70% of global agrochemicals are dominated by four companies and 90% of global grain trade by four businesses. Some 10 to 20 transnational companies effectively own world food production, processing and distribution. Consolidated interests that some argue are collectively larger than the world's smallest 100 economies together. But some 80% of the world's food in value terms is produced by small family farms and traditional food producers, often women, and often those women and their communities live in regions most impacted by climate change. Western diets alone are dominated by four, four staple industrial crops. Um, but the good news is agrobiodiversity is increasingly uh, recognised as an urgent avenue to expand and diversify food sources and uh, care for biodiversity. So let's hear now from Dana, Federica, Fiona and Anya about their research. Let's just dive in and can I ask each of you to tell us why is food systems transformation so important from where you sit and in the research you do? And I'm going to ask Dana to lead us in if that's okay, Dana. Sure, absolutely. I hope you can all hear me there and again apologies I can't be with you um a pretty grim picture you've just painted luckily over the next hour and a half we're also going to be talking about how we can overcome some of these um, challenges through partnerships um, at different scales and transform the food system and um often I think when we're thinking about you know these threats and risks that are facing the food system we often implicitly start at the farm and forget about um, what happens um, prior to the farm but as we know there are actually some really key um, raw material inputs that are required and there's some pretty big risks and threats happening there and one of those is phosphorus which is a, a resource that I've been working on for the past um, 15-20 years and specifically looking at how our food systems can transform in the face of global phosphorus scarcity and some of the, the risks that um, we're facing there. So working with um, stakeholders across uh, Australia, Malawi, UK, North America, Vietnam, et cetera, because it's an issue that faces all countries and um, all farmers. So um, for those who, who aren't aware about um, the story of phosphorus, we um, basically cannot produce food anywhere in the world without phosphorus um, and nitrogen and potassium as well. And we need those in the form of uh, fertilisers. Now, phosphorus is as essential as oxygen or carbon or, or hydrogen, but we often don't hear about um, that importance, yet humanity literally would not exist without um, phosphorus. And the problem arises is that today our global food systems are completely dependent on one main source of phosphorus to produce food, and that's finite phosphate rock reserves that have taken about 10 to 15 millions of years um, to form. And what we know now is that the remaining reserves are becoming increasingly risky, expensive. We do not necessarily have secure supply chains of those reserves to um, produce food, and it's contributed to the major food crises that we've seen um, and price spikes that we've seen over the past few decades. 
Um, and what you can see in this uh, picture um, is just a reminder that while all farmers need access to phosphorus, we have five countries that control 85% of the world's remaining phosphorus. And the largest share that you can see there is with Morocco. So basically the Moroccan royal family-owned um, fertiliser company or phosphate controls three-quarters of the world's remaining phosphate. And so this means that all other countries, whether we're talking Australia, India, in sub-Saharan Africa, Europe, we're all dependent on imports, imported phosphate, and hence vulnerable to the price spikes and um, supply disruptions that, that we have seen and we'll see more of. Last year, we saw a 400% price spike in um, phosphate fertilisers, uh, triggered in part by um, the COVID pandemic because China's one of the major uh, producers, annual producers of phosphate, and also, um, of course, because of Russia's um, phosphate there. It's had devastating consequences for farmers um, worldwide and our food systems. Regardless of um, those, those shocks and perturbations in the system, we already have about a billion farmers worldwide who can't can't access fertiliser markets. They can't afford it. And typically these are the same smallholder farming families who are the, the food insecure that we heard Anthea mentioned in the 800-odd um, million um, hungry people in the world. Um, so this is not okay. Fertiliser access is a really, really big deal. But at the same time, the flip side, if you look at the phosphorus value chain through the food system, it's one of the most inefficient systems or value chains um, in the world. We lose 80% of the phosphorus that we mine for food production or food consumption at all stages from mining to farming to fork. Um, and so this is in part leading to um, widespread nutrient pollution um, across the world from the Great Barrier Reef to China to, to Mexico and the US. And um, for those, or many of you would, of course, be familiar with the planetary boundaries, um, that's one reason why you see phosphorus and nitrogen having exceeded um, the safe operating space for humanity because of this nutrient pollution of our waterways causing toxic algal blooms which not only kills fish and other aquatic biodiversity, um, it obviously affects uh, fishermen and fisherwomen's livelihoods. It can render our drinking water toxic, not to mention it's very stinky and unsightly having these um, awful um, toxic algal blooms. And then finally, one of the, the big uh, issues there is who is responsible for governing phosphorus for food security because um, as I've shown phosphorus is relevant to everyone but no one is taking responsibility there's very fragmented governance around phosphorus it's very unclear the roles and responsibilities between different stakeholders um, yet it's absolutely essential um, but the good news is, because, of course, we want to keep talking about what we can do, how we can transform, there's a lot we can do. And even just starting at a basic technical level, that 80% um, of phosphorus that I mentioned is lost throughout the food system, well, we can actually um, recover a lot of that phosphorus. So I'm talking about phosphorus lost in the food waste, in the crop residuals, in manure, in human excreta, um, and use phosphorus much more efficiently in the first place. Uh, for example, we do need to um, shift, um, shift our diets towards more plant-based foods, not only because we know it will lower our um, climate impact, um, reduce the, the energy footprint, water footprint, but it's the same for phosphorus as well. So that's going to be a really key, key um, lever. 
and then just focusing a little bit more on um, investing in what I call renewable fertilisers, so fertilisers that have been produced um, instead of using a, a non-renewable risky um, resource but instead using these local resources like um, food waste and, and human excreta. So that can at the same time as buffering against those risky um, import fertiliser markets, so instead of depending on China and, and Russia and Morocco so much, farmers can have a, a more secure and affordable supply of, of local fertilisers that at the same time reduce nutrient pollution because it's preventing all those nutrients from wastewater and, and agriculture running off into our waterways um, and also support local jobs and manufacture in addition to reducing um, the climate impact of our, um, of our fertilisers, both phosphorus and nitrogen, nitrogen of which is a huge contributor to the world's um, climate impact. So, you know, when we're talking about scale, for example, it's quite fascinating to think about how the most intimate scale, uh, local scale, you know, being our, our bodies and our own excrement can uh, essentially have the power to disrupt these um, global geopolitical um, power dynamics. There's a lot of work to do, and I won't go on into it now because we want to hear from everyone else in the panel as well. But clearly, we need to think about um, governance around that to stimulate and support those innovations. So I'll just leave it there for now. Thank you. Donna, thank you. Around the world in in a very concise, fabulous way. Thank you so much. And um, we just had a session where the dilemmas of Australia's extractive obsession to feed net zero you know transitions lithium mines and other just you know we, we don't even there's no framework for phosphorus we don't have a sense of secure um vitally vitally essential resources for security and phosphorus is one of them and um, we recently opened a big phosphorus mine in the northern territory and china exports that all to china and then we bring it back and, you know it's, it's, it's a great system so i think on the subject of uh you know fertilizers inputs alternative systems i think anya you're our next candidate if you'd like to um, follow on from Dana and tell us about what your research is. I sure would. I'm just jumping to my image here. So this picture on the screen is a farm called Belvedere Farm up in southeast Queensland. And I mean, so what we're seeing here is a small scale farm producing um, beef, pork and poultry. That little square you can see along the road in the distance is a chicken caravan. So the chickens roam free during the day and then they go into their little caravan at night. That little caravan, as well as the pig sty, I moved around the farm, going back to what Dinah was talking about, using animal excrement to fertilize soil to reduce inputs. Now, this all sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And oh, to add, Belvedere Farm, um, as an agroecological operation is direct to consumer. It's community supported agriculture, which means the community buys directly from the farmer, from the farm gate. And yeah, so this all sounds like this sort of beautiful ideal system, local food grown on small scales. It looks beautiful, surrounded by this biodiversity. Belvedere Farms also working, um, they've ceded land back to um, the local indigenous people so they can be on country. Sounds lovely. And what some people might describe this as is something called regenerative agriculture. This idea of regenerating connection to land, regenerating soil, water um, and nutrient systems. And what my research is, is unfortunately looking at some of the, as um, Fed put it yesterday, politely critical of some of the things around this. Because while this seems like what we mean when we talk about regenerative agriculture, 
what tends to happen in the food system is you have this sort of painting of the ideal, but you delve a little bit deeper behind a label and that's not necessarily the case. And so my research looks into how the food system can be described in all these ways. We have these discourses that come out, but there's motivations behind it. Because the fact of the matter is that industrial agriculture, as Anthea has mentioned, has severely degraded our systems. We're looking at 70% of agrobiodiversity has been lost. More than a third of the world's agricultural land is degraded. 23% of GHG emissions or more, depending on your metrics, as well as increases in cost of production, issues of social equity and access. And so in response, we're seeing a bunch of different narratives and discourses come out. And one of the latest ones, and it's getting a lot of attention, is regenerative agriculture. And it's painted in this way of these beautiful farm systems, and this is what you expect. But what we find in reality is it's often much broader scale farms from wealthy farmers, typically white farmers, in Western settler colonial settings that are producing food in a way that is improving some ecosystem outcomes, but is not engaging with some of the more um, political and social issues that our food system faces. So Anthony described really well before the issues of corporate concentration and the political economies of the food system. Some of the biggest supporters of regenerative agriculture are Bayer, which as we know, uh, recently bought out Monsanto, one of the largest agrochemical companies in the world, produces a lot of fertilizer and agrochemical inputs. Can we really believe that these companies are um, intending for us to reduce the amount of inputs that we put into production? Possibly not. Another big supporter is Cargill, the largest privately owned company in the United States. Not a lot that we can know about Cargill because it is privately owned, but we do know that it supports large-scale what we call CARFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations. Across the US, it's a large grain trader, so how, and a, um, also meat processor. So how do we expect then Cargill to be supporting these small-scale, lovely direct-to-consumer um, food systems? So what I'm interested in when we're talking about transforming the food system isn't just looking at the words that we use or the nice terms that are used to describe something. It's about interrogating who is using those terms and why. Are there already alternatives that exist um, that are being promoted by people with less powerful voices? And there are. We hear of the agroecology movement, which emerged out of the global south, and that advocates for small-scale equity and justice-based food systems, that work with nature and acknowledge in particular indigenous and traditional knowledge and food practices. That movement already exists, but we don't hear about it a lot in settler colonial and white countries in the West. Instead, we're starting to hear more and more about regenerative agriculture. So there's politics at play in terms of how we're talking about the food systems and how we're talking about solutions. And that's where my real interest lies. Thanks, Anya. And, 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 of course, regenerative agriculture, the, the label, the imaginary, the celebrities, uh, the landowners, often long-standing landowners, it, it travels with this whole imaginary. And, of course, it offers a lot of benefits, but as lots to unpack. And, of, and, and, and perhaps it doesn't speak up food sovereignty as much, which goes to agroecology. And, and, and there's a very strong 
uh, food sovereignty movement in Australia, which has a, has an interesting relationship with regenerative agriculture. Small, robust local food systems, resilient communities fighting back to extreme events. Fiona, I, th I think that leads us pretty directly into your quite incredible work that you've done just in the last six to eight months. Would you like to tell us about your research and you know why food why transformation is so important and you've you've seen it literally on the ground and in the water haven't you mm. yes i have thank you anthea and um it's an absolute pleasure to be here in the transformations community and with my esteemed colleagues at the institute for sustainable futures it's so great to hear about all the work that we're doing so i'd like to represent a regional voice um, and bring the discussion to a regional scale. Can I get a quick show of hands if anyone has, is visiting from a regional area of Australia? Oh, we have a few. It might, might even be about half of the audience. That's great to, great to see. So I'm visiting uh, the lands of the Gadigal people from uh, the land of the Widjibal Wyabal people of the Bunjalung Nation which is the, also known as the Northern Rivers region of um, New South Wales here in Australia. And if anybody's joining from overseas, um, it's probably best known for um, having the famous tourist town of Byron Bay. Um, but what the region is, is a, a, a subtropical region. It's, a, it's an agricultural region. It, it, it's very fertile and it's... Uh, located in a, in a peri-urban area. It's a, a region that um, could be considered a, a food bowl and uh, produces a lot of food that's exported to the urban area of Brisbane, which is just over the border from New South Wales in southeast Queensland and connects on major um, freight lines to the um, distant markets of Sydney and, and Melbourne. There's a lot of pressures facing the Northern Rivers region at the moment. Um, there's a rapidly growing population and following COVID, uh, uh, an extreme wave of, of tree changes, people um, migrating from urban areas into the regional areas. Um, and that has increased housing costs. So we're in a bit of a housing crisis. The affordability of housing is um, not so great. Um, we also have um, very high rates of, of socioeconomic disadvantage in the region, despite the, the glossy look of, of Byron Bay on, on, the, on the TV screens and um, across social media. And uh, we're actually facing a, you know, a food insecurity problem in our region, which is echoed across the country. As of just last year, a third of Australians were, were struggling to put food on the table, which is pretty hard to imagine in what we think is an abundant uh, food-rich society in Australia. But the reality is uh, the pressures of the cost of living, and uh, the cost of food and um, loss of income due to COVID have really crunched people's food budgets. So that's happening in the Northern Rivers as well. But uh, what's overlaid on that is uh, last year's uh, catastrophic events that occurred in the Northern Rivers region. Um, we were subject to two um, unprecedented floods, the worst floods in uh, colonial history and on record. So what you're seeing is um, a picture here of Lismore, one of the major centres in the Northern Rivers. Um, it's called the Northern Rivers because uh, a large number of rivers converge into a floodplain uh, in the region. And Lismore is one of these, two of the major rivers meet in Lismore. And they're no strangers to, to floods. There's regular floods that occur and have been since uh, colonial settlers arrived in the area. 
Um, but what was characteristic of these floods last year were that they were two metres higher than the recorded, the last recorded highest flood level. So we were used to a 12.4 metre flood. We got a 14.4 metre flood. This is the uh, major shopping centre in the middle of Lismore. It's pretty iconic in seeing that um, the two major supermarkets on which the majority of the population depend upon were underwater. And they were built to withstand the largest flood. And um, unfortunately, this was the majority of food outlets in the region. So we actually faced quite a significant food crisis. We had one flood in February, followed by a second flood in, in March. So it was quite um, unprecedented and um, quite a, a shock to the region. Uh, the result uh, for the food system was uh, massive crop loss across all of our agricultural areas, which are situated on the floodplain, the nice fertile floodplain. Uh, we had roads cut off for weeks up to months. Um, we had a, a major shortage of food, particularly in communities that were cut off due to hundreds of landslides across roads, on farms, on properties. Um, we had helicopter drops happening in remote communities and um, we had no fuel, uh, which uh, essentially as highlighted in the research that I conducted um, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. I partnered with some local organisations, Plan C, which is an organisation that's been looking at resilience in the region for many years now, pre-flood and uh, Griffith University and uh, this partnership was, I was lucky enough to be involved in interviewing a range of food system stakeholders across the region. We talked to farmers, we talked to food business owners, we talked to residents, we talked to food charities to just try to understand and do some sense making of what the food system looks like now post-disaster. And while it's a, a catastrophic and traumatic event, it's also an opportunity to start looking at a food system from scratch again and to wipe the slate clean and understand where, where things are going well and where things are not. And uh, we really found that there's major vulnerabilities in the Northern Rivers food system. There's um, a lot of weaknesses and there's a, a reliance on exporting the majority of our food and importing the majority of our food to, a, to our region. While we boast our agricultural production, a very, very small amount of that is actually sourced locally for the population. We rely on long supply chains, food to be exported to Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and we import that food to our region as well. So um, the floods really shone a light on those weaknesses, on the fact that roads are cut off and that cuts off our food supply um, but it also presented um, and uncovered a, a number of key opportunities in the region as well which um, I'm happy to talk about in the next question. Thanks Fiona and um, a community traumatised already by really serious bushfires in the preceding years with incredible erosion and soil degradation and then copying these two floods on top. So what are the long-term consequences for the productive footprint of that region? You know, it's pretty terrifying stuff. And amongst those traumatised people, traumatised uh, workforces or absent workforces, which I think is a nice segue, <laughs> Federique, for, for you to talk about your really incredible diverse work around workforces, migrant labour, the Pacific Islands, climate in the Pacific, the relationship <laughs> shifting between the two. Over to you. <laughs> thank you, Anthea. And thank you to all the previous speakers. Um, yeah, so I focus my food systems work 
um, largely on Pacific Islands food systems, uh, particularly over the last five years. And the way I work with partners in the region is to really try and look at the historical shifts and approaches and understandings of food systems, how they're being transformed and shaped by current environmental and socioeconomic change, and then how that has implications for governing and making decisions for the future of small island food systems. So in the Pacific Islands context, it's an extremely diverse region with their different food systems, most of, most of which have been through generations, very uh, localized, small-scale, community-based, reciprocally-based economies of food production and consumption. Now, these societies have deep attachments to food. They play a very important religious and cultural role, like in many other societies in the world. And that stands to this day. So traditional approaches to farming, to managing land and ocean, remain very strongly tied to Pacific food system identity. With that said, these systems have already been substantially disrupted through time, particularly over the last 100 years with colonization, with technology, with globalization, and societies and the, the, the changing profile of Pacific communities has meant the food system is rapidly changing. Now, what this means for um, transformation, uh, transformations that are taking place now, and then the outcomes of the food system, what we're seeing is that the region is already experiencing fairly major biophysical shocks, both in the ocean and land. So it's really important to think, remember the food system also includes the massive oceans of the world, and in the Pacific Islands, the the oceans drive most of the um, uh, food system, so fish is a major protein source for many communities. And these oceans are changing, the corals are changing, and this is changing fish populations. This is affecting how communities consume uh, their fish and access protein, but also it's affecting livelihoods um, due inability to um, sell fish. Uh, Land's obviously rapidly changing as well. The severe impacts of cyclones affects crops in Vanuatu. I believe the cyclone from a few years ago wiped about 70% of crops in some islands. The increasing neoliberalization of some agriculture systems, particularly in Melanesia, means communities are transitioning away from traditional food systems towards more cash-based economies, and that creates enormous risks for the food security. And beyond the biophysical threats and transformations that are taking place, there's often a forgotten element, which is human labor and the role that human labor plays in producing, distributing, managing food. And the picture behind me is a lovely stock image that we bought for $2.99 for our report. But we just thought it was a brilliant photo because it captures, captures the complexity of the industrial Western food systems, uh, particularly in Australia, and the role they play in uh, transforming labor relations between Australia and the Pacific Islands. A lot of Australian farming, particularly up north in Queensland, is done by Pacific seasonal workers. That's profoundly grown over the last decade. We've done a fairly comprehensive study looking at workers' perceptions of their experience in working agriculture systems and the extent to which they can uh, bring some of the Pacific knowledge to Australia, but also vice versa. What can they learn from alternative production systems in Australia if they have any exposure to them to take to the Pacific? 
But what is happening from that labor perspective is that the societies in particular in Indonesia are rapidly losing skilled labor because of the Australian food system needs of um, requiring labor for, for our food security. And I was in Solomon Islands in April and discussions with people on the street and, and colleagues we work with were pointing us towards the fact that they are losing doctors and lawyers because there's better opportunities in Australia in terms of income to be fruit pickers. And that's profoundly transforming the public sector and the rural sectors in the Pacific Islands. And then another major um, food system transformation in terms of the outcome of the system taking place is the health context, which we've touched upon already. But because of these globalization trends in the region, if you look at the top 10 countries with non-communicable diseases in the world, about eight are from the Pacific Islands region. And this is due to a really complex interaction of import and cheap processed goods, the uh, convenience of a lot of these flour and rice-based products over traditional foods, overall that, shape, that, that changing dietary um, patterns, particularly in urban area, particularly in, in young populations. And a final point in terms of the transformations that are taking place relates to attention in the conceptual transformations on how aid and development and policy happens in the region. There is, particularly the last few years, as there has been a substantial increase in private and public investment in all sustainable development goal sectors. Particularly, there's been a, a big attention paid to food. And there is a, an increasing narrative led by Pacific uh, research institutions, NGOs, to really bring back a lot of these agroecological traditional approaches to farming, uh, which has re been really exciting to see. But that is competing with the very powerful narratives of international aid agencies, uh, philanthropy aid groups, and um, some multilateral groups that are pushing this business as usual, commercial, cash economy based um, food production approach. And I think that tension in how you conceptualize food systems approaches is something that's going to be very vibrant over the next few years. It's fascinating, isn't it? The, the export push wherever you are and losing your artisanal deep food ways, you know, via people literally going to support an export push somewhere else. It's so identifying and enabling change. Obviously, it all takes, it's all about people and into personal and institutional relationships and so on. I'd, I'd be really fascinated to dig now in a bit more to hear about some examples of of your work, of the partners you work with, the partnerships you see functioning and, and how they're and, and where they're zooming into transform elements of the food system. And perhaps thinking particularly about, you know, who they are, what their role is and at what scale, you know, um, as as individuals or institutions they're they're embedded. I don't know, Federica, would you like to continue on on that theme, what, you know, what, with, with that narrative? Yeah, Yeah, ha happy to start and then hand over to the others. So moving into, I guess, yeah, that theme of partnerships and how um, ISF, have, ISF has been working with partners in the Pacific. So I'll speak to one program of work we did over uh, about three years from 2019 to 2021 with SPC. So SPC is the Pacific region's oldest science and technology agency. They're about 70 years old and they're tasked with doing uh, research that supports uh, sustainable development and policy development across Pacific nations. And it is an agency that's staffed by both Pacific uh, people and Western staff. So it's a combination of uh, professionals working in that space. 
and ISEV had the opportunity to build a collaboration with them, helping them um, establish this systemic way of thinking about food. So SPC has 70 years of fairly extensive experience across different food system sectors. So they've got climate divisions, agriculture divisions, fisheries divisions, health. But like in, in many contexts, these weren't really integrated in how they were pursuing funding and how they were supporting governments. So ISF had the, the privilege to be able to support that systems thinking and integration across divisions and thinking through how can an institution that supports specific governments through research and, and, and technology approach food in a systemic way. Thank, thank, thanks for that. Fiona? Local organisations, partners, what's what scale that they were operating and and did it go beyond the region? Would you like to talk about sure. the partnerships you've seen really fire up and the, there were lots going before the disasters but they've just been incredible since, haven't they? Yes, definitely. Um, in our uh, scoping study that, that looked at the state of play in the food system and, and, and talking to food system actors, we... One of the key findings was that the response to the floods in terms of food was completely community-led. Um, and it was just so prevalent that um, there were just key champions within the community and within the food system that were rapidly responding to the food crisis. Um, and one example um, was the, the, the key partnerships and relationships around the farmer's market network in our region so we interviewed farmers markets and um, uh, there's about 16 across the the region of the northern rivers and it's quite a culture to come and buy from your local farmer at one of these farmers markets and uh, following the the flood um, the supermarkets were were closed for a about three months um there were the shelves were empty there was no way for, for food to get in and um no one could access food at their local supermarket the relationships that had been established through farmers markets with networks of farmers with the farmers market managers they were the real champions who uh, you know days after the floods um where the farmers markets are at the showgrounds that had been flooded, they had picked up the phone, they had found a new location, they had re-diverted a lot of the produce from the local farmers to um, farm gate sales, to the farmers markets where they were creating veggie boxes to distribute to people, to um, online sales via the farmers markets website. It was just this very rapid response and it was purely community-led. So there was a very long delay in terms of government support to the region. But what that showed was these these social networks and these um, pre-existing relationships and partnerships between farmer and consumer, between farmer and the farmer's market manager, they just kicked into action immediately. Uh, you know, an example of a, a local food system that had been operating in the region for many, many years prior. And those it's a strength of those partnerships that really were a hidden contributor to you know, the resilience of the food system to kick back in and provide food to, to the people who need it. Thanks, Fiona. And Regen farmers, um, whether of, you know, all the gorgeous meat producers and many, many organic and regeneratively grown uh, market gardens of different scales, big players in market, those sorts of food systems. What, 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 about, what about the partnerships you're interacting with and at what scale and yeah. so, what role are they yeah, playing? I think yeah, I think there's a really big 
part and there's a strong element and probably these one of the strongest elements in the regenerative movement is these what we call alternative food networks and that is about different ways of distributing food and reconnecting um i don't we don't really like the word consumers do we food eaters food appreciators food citizens um rather than consumers um with the people that produce their food and fiber. And so we see, you know, a lot more of these direct-to-consumer um, systems, these community-supported agriculture, and increasingly also, so that's an important partnership of how you connect farmers with the people that then eat their food or wear their fibers. But I think there's also, and really important in regenerative agriculture or any actual sustainable agriculture movement in Australia, because there are others, has been farmer to farmer learning and partnerships. And that's about farmers bringing others onto their farm and having chats regularly. There's a group called Eight Families um, down in southeastern New South Wales near the Victorian border. And that is literally just a group of families who found like-minded individuals and they meet regularly and they describe how they talk through their problems in an open and comfortable way, something they may not be able to do with their accountant or their advisor or even a family member. And also to be there emotionally supporting each other through tough family times. And I think there's often a misconception sometimes that these conversations you know, happen over the back fence. That's not often the case. This group of eight families was over the uh, area of maybe 500 kilometers squared, quite dispersed because the reality is these people are still the minority in agriculture. And so that is the power of terms like regenerative, that they find like-minded individuals. But then going up a scale, one of the examples I pulled up here on this image of these farmers all standing around having a chat, hands on hips, that's classic, um, <laughs> is actually a land care event. Now, land care is a program for those unfamiliar in Australia that came up um, so I believe the 80s was largely a community scale, um, but then got picked up by government as it was a community scale, bi-regional scale conservation movement. And, you know, originally a lot more about um, replanting trees, restoring natural landscapes, but eventually started working really well in partnership with farmers and recognising that farmers own the majority of land in Australia. They are a majority land shareholder outside of government and national parks. So recognising that and bring, helping bring biodiversity back on farm. And so now there's actually pretty, in terms of the positives, a great relationship that exists. And this is beyond regenerative agriculture. Regenerative does not own this, but it is part of that space of government, the Australian government at the federal level, sponsoring the National Land Care Program, which sends funding down to local community scale um, land care groups, which means that you can have these communities and partnerships and these events. And if you go on almost any land care website in regional areas, they will have farm visit days, they'll have ways to connect. So that's, I think, a great example of that scale from that sort of government down to the community and back and forth. Um, and one other one I would like to mention, you mentioned before the food sovereignty movement in Australia. So this is going a bit beyond regenerative agriculture. This is actually thinking more about social equity issues and especially for small, far small scale farmers and access to being able to, if you want to grow food or if you want to be on the land, how you can access that. And there's a group called the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance and they are currently consulting on their new people's food plan which is essentially delivering solutions at the community and government um, and individual scale on how we can take action to improve 
um, across a swathe of areas around access to food, um, around how we grow our food, access to land, and particularly improving diversity and most importantly, indigenous um, and traditional knowledge and reintegrating that back into our food system. So in terms of projects that I'm excited about and partnerships, the work that AFSA is doing largely off their own dime and time is pretty impressive. And AFSA are, are deeply embedded in international conversations and advocacy with La, Capa La Campesina, um, home of much great food sovereignty thinking and lived experience. And, and, and I know that AFSA were very involved in the um, food summit, UN Food Summit in 21. Um, so a variety of scales there. Dana, you, you of all of, of, of everyone on the panel, I imagine your, your partnerships, where, where do you focus? I mean, from local to global, where, where, what are the partnerships and at what scale are you investing your energy in and with at the moment, perhaps to narrow that question, yeah. That's a good question because, as you say, those partnerships need to happen across lots of different scales. And um, it's not just that partnerships are going to be um, nice to enhance um, transformations of the phosphorus and food systems. They're going to be essential to underpinning that because there's no way we're going to be able to create those viable renewable fertiliser circular value chains without directly linking partners. And, for example, linking the sanitation sector with the fertiliser industry who are, you know, unlikely bedfellows um, is critical to that. But also thinking about the waste contractors who, you know, currently collect um, food waste, for example, but also um, farmers and environmental managers and regulators um, and food retailers, etc. And so we've been working very closely with um, the whole range of stakeholders across um, different countries, um, so often at the national scale, to develop um, national phosphorus transformation strategies. Um, but also, you know, going out and, and um, engaging and interviewing uh, other stakeholders at more um, local or regional scales. And you can see in the picture in the top um, left, that's us uh, interviewing a, a fertiliser retailer in a, in a regional area in um, Sri Lanka. Um, and so what we're finding by really engaging those stakeholders and bringing them together is, uh, for example, understanding, you know, what's actually stopping, what are the big blockages that are stopping um, organic circular value chains from happening at the scale that we need for food security? Um, and one of the really important um, first points is um, a failure to engage the end-use market. So often you have... Um, waste managers from an environmental perspective trying to reduce pollution by, you know, recovering, um, you know, phosphorus and nitrogen from wastewater and, and um, other, other solid waste. Um, but then you talk to, say, frustrated farmers in the Sydney Basin who say these waste contractors are dumping free compost at their farm gate and wondering why, you know, we're being so ungrateful and not using it. And um, it's simply because we don't have the machinery to spread it. Um, so it's a really good reminder that you need to talk to the end user, the farmer, for example, um, up front to understand what are their needs, preferences, what are they currently using, understand the market, what's the market competition if we're trying to actually create, you know, these, a commercial um, value chain here. Because what's happening at the moment is, is you do get um, often waste managers at that end, the waste end, um, investing millions in recovering great technologies to recover phosphorus and nitrogen um, from waste and then almost as an afterthought, you know, thinking about, well, who's who's the end use market? Where can I sell this product? And um, we need to flip that. We need to do it the other way around and have these really good um, partnerships between those groups. And 
Another really good example comes from um, Malawi, where we've done a bit of work um, to remind us about um, what's stopping things from happening. And we're engaging the fertiliser um, industry there, the main um, product manager of fertilisers, and thinking it just wasn't interested in using, you know, renewable sources like um, human excreta, but it wasn't the ick factor. He said, you know, these sanitation um, workers come with a few tonnes of, um, you know, pee and poo, and he said, don't come to me with, you know, a couple of tonnes of um, excreta a day. Come back when you've got 100 tonnes a day and then we'll talk business. And so that's a really good reminder that we actually need to create um, the economy of scale and we need to have a se secure supply chain of raw materials, even when we're talking about human excreta or, or food waste. And so perhaps what needs to happen is we need long-term contracts between the waste collectors um, and the fertiliser industry because otherwise it's a chicken and egg and no one's going to um, budge first. So I could go on, there's lots of really important examples but it's basically it will be essential to have these kinds of partnerships well, we'll do go on let's talk about enablers and barriers enablers and barriers because you've already sort of uh described some really good ones already in that just in that that picturing what what do we need like communities of practice formal and informal anya's referred to them so as fiona established net social networks new languages and mainstreaming imaginaries of what could be everyday and possible whether it's described through a secure supply chain and and, and a, of a new product at scale let's just think a little bit out of the box in terms of enable think about the partnerships you've all just spoken about and what are the enablers and barriers that you see in those partnerships you know, really, really f firing up the tr the areas of transformation they're contributing to. Would you like to just to let go on a little bit there, Dana, about the narrative around phosphorus, for example, and and what what are some enablers and barriers in terms of how you communicate the scale, the nature, as you said, go to the end users, but also it's right up front at the production and use end of fertilizer. What, 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 what thoughts on enablers and barriers? Yeah, I think you touched on something important there around. And, um, the language and the framing and, and the community practice and bringing people together. Um, I think that's incredibly important because all these stakeholders are coming from a very different perspective and have very different understandings and framings. And so it took me a while to realise that most people don't actually care about phosphorus. They've got other things on their minds. And so now what we do and we're engaging stakeholders is the very first thing is asking them what their priorities are. What keeps you up at night? We want to know what their priorities are and then we can work backwards and see how that links to phosphorus, how that links to the next stakeholder, how we can bring all those stakeholders together using their key priorities um, and start to build a bit of a, a systems picture of, of those linkages um, I think is, is really incredible. And that's, that's one of the processes we've used in a lot of our stakeholder workshops um, around the world, which has been great. And uh, I think also as part of that, um, with engagement, what enables it is that we need to talk early and we need to talk often. Um, so just a reminder not to um, think of partners and engagement um, at the end of a, of a process. It's upfront we need to bring everyone together to identify what those opportunities um, are. And, and our role is sometimes just brokering um, those relationships because we can see, you know, the, the, the whole picture. I think there's a bit of a risk, though, around trying to find um, common ground. Of course, we you know, we want to find common ground so that we can all move forwards and co-create that 
that future vision, and, and, and certainly we do do that, but we need to acknowledge that there, you know, stakeholders have different stakes, different agendas, and that that's always going to be the case. So we need to respect some of those differences, and some of that we can, you know, come together through um, through dialogue to to help those stakeholders see where others are coming from, and and even identify where where some of those opportunities are by collaborating and not seeing it as always a, as a threat. But it won't always be the case, and um, one of the related barriers there is that. That there will, you know, sometimes and and has been in the phosphorus sector, be agendas and politics that gets in the way um, of progress. So we need to work out how we can how we can um, move around that. And you know, it, it, we sometimes need to, um, for us, you know, nerdy researchers. Um, analyze our, our stakeholders. You can think of the, the roles of different um, system stakeholders and their alignment with this sustainable um, future trajectory for, for phosphorus and where they sit and therefore how we need to engage them. And if there is no com- shared commitment to um, co-designing that future, then um, that is going to be yeah, one of the major barriers. So yeah, just leave it there. Thanks. Communities of practice, cultures, informal, that have really Built resilience, Fiona. I'm thinking of your region um, and your, your wonderful recent report. I'm just wondering what 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 key enablers and barriers for that particular community of practice and that network of cultural connections and real, you know, material food production uh, ones. How, how that might travel with other strategies, I suppose, or you know, um, enablers like some people often think government policy and government funding might do the job. What do you think about that? Yeah, I definitely echo what, what Dana's saying and I think what we can all experience in our research is those informal networks, they're very hidden and they're not easily measured and they're not easily recognised. I mean, the you know, the poster child for, um, for flood recovery and food provision is the army coming in and is the food charity stepping up and everybody can get their food from the big trucks rolling through town. But it wasn't the case from what we found in our research. It was really these networks and they're they're abstract at times um you know i put a there's a picture up here of um uh the curry kitchen this was a pop-up kitchen that that sprung up a week after the flood in a, a tent outside of um the an indigenous owned and operated newspaper called the curry mail in lismore um and you would imagine that perhaps some of the staff from the curry mail grabbed a pop-up tent started cooking meals it wasn't it was actually a woman who traveled from another local government area neighboring local government area she was a film producer and she partnered with a woman who was a chef who tapped into the hospitality network and the network of of chefs from far away to actually start up this kitchen which was open for 10 months in the car park opposite the the newspaper and served all walks of life they provided food to anybody who came in um, regardless of race regardless of class and it was just such an extraordinary story to to hear about because you wouldn't might not have expected that from a film producer and a and a chef Um, another one was a resident that we talked to who cooked meals in her home kitchen she cooked um 1400 meals a week at the height of what she was providing she had a son with special needs who had special dietary requirements she um, also uh, was very passionate about animal rescue and animal rescue charity ended up crowdsourcing and crowdfunding her food relief efforts out of her home kitchen i mean these are these hidden contributors that we need to start 
recognizing and valuing and putting emphasis on and supporting to be expanding and to be a more consistent you know feature in our local food systems and replicated for other places that suffer extreme events they're not extreme they're regular now aren't they Anya enablers barriers key Uh, partners yeah I'm going to take it up like the opposite scale of what Fiona was just about the power of individuals to look at power of big guns because I think when I think about the key barriers it's that image on screen it is big business holding what looks like nice beautiful green earth and soil and selling us ultra processed foods that are basically nutrient deficient and addictive because what I always come to through my training and interests as a political scientist originally is who slash what is the thing for who is gaining and who is losing and I think one of the key barriers we end up having is those motivations that we hear about a lot but we need to keep coming back to money votes social license because that is often one of the key sort of things that stand in the way what is in the way of regenerative farmers doing what they do at the best way that they can it is money whether they need to be able to afford to make the transition or they need someone to pay them to do it or they need someone to buy their food that potentially is going to be much more expensive i sat at a conference full of regenerative farmers and there was this whole chat around price premiums be like you guys it's all good you're all going to get price premiums for your food and someone very aptly stood up i actually believe she was from the lismore area and went what about everyone else who can't afford your expensive steaks so it is about yeah so it comes back to those motivations and those motivations can also be the enablers so i think about the case of soil carbon one of the key drivers in regenerative in the regenerative movement is sequestering soil carbon now there are two motivations you can have for that one is money one is i can literally farm the carbon in my soil i can make money from it and on the one hand that's great you're supporting farmers in our current system to do some good things but there are other motivations that farmers have it's about resilience it's about enhancing the water retention of your soil the nutrient cycles it's about giving back what professor Anne Pullin was talking about earlier giving back to country so that's a different motivation and to me that is a much longer term stronger enabler but that's going to take a really big transformative shift in the mindset and I think that goes again back to the well-being economy how are we rewarding farmers and incentivizing them because currently in Australia our farmers are incentivized and mobilized through capital through being they are framed as business owners and they have and our agriculture sector is framed as one of exponential growth which I can't quite understand how that's going to work we have finite land that is already degrading and I think potentially the enabler then for that is that well-being economy and also going back to what um, Anne was talking about earlier which I just love is this bioregional governance because the farmers I spoke to they want local seasonal nutritious and healthy food systems I think the real answer to that will be bringing things back down to the bioregion farming for the appropriateness of your catchment or bioregion scale and you know bringing food systems back into that bioregion the people who live there so that you can shorten those supply chains and that doesn't mean that you know cows are going to be sitting in the middle of Sydney but we can look at that Sydney bioregion differently so I think those are yeah 
finding the motivations and um, the values and figuring out and trying to, yeah, uplift the good ones and work out how to deal with the bad ones. And agrobiodiversity in, in Australia and everywhere, many more different types of foods more appropriate to place to the bioregion, the care for country, and there's huge amounts of really positive work going on in that space. We don't need that many cows. Um, fed. So, yeah, so interesting gosh enablers and barriers i'm thinking of those laborers and their families but you're obviously also thinking at the institutions and the groups you're working with what, what, what are your thoughts there what's it like for these these migrant workers coming to australia do they like it do they resent it do they love the money what, what what's the mix of emotions that go on there it's definitely a mix of emotions but the number of migrants is substantially increasing every 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 year Solomon Islands is now the biggest centre of migrants. Overall, they love it. There's been various surveys done by different groups, research groups, World Bank, consistently the migrants love it. And it's mostly, including in our work, they find the money go money's the main driver and it goes uh, school fees, putting walls in my house, supporting the church, everything else. Any spare money goes to everything else. Um, it's, it's a really complex space. Um, but I guess elevating from that issue towards, I guess, thinking about institutions and the role they play in setting narratives, uh, I guess a barrier I see that then offers opportunities is there's a really powerful institutional path dependency in how agricultural and food-related problems get framed and therefore solutions conceptualized and identified. This, I mean, the fact that most institutions are now talking about food systems that's a new new language, a new discourse over the last 15 years. That in itself is a it's an important shift. But a barrier remains in, even though it's still framed as a system, a lot of the framings remain very much trapped in what I see as quantitative, science-driven framings of the problem and solution. These systems approaches, including the UN Big Food Systems Summits, remain trapped in technological solutions, positivist, science-based, approaches not really tackling sovereignty race power like those deep drivers of the success of those solutions so to flip that then into a, an opportunity i think all of us involved in research and education and capacity building there's a a lot of work to support in terms of building systems literacy in food practitioners and it's about understanding those science politics interactions and that needs to happen not just at universities and research centers it has to be part of the people that are working with communities that working with ngo that are working with ngos so there's a lot to be done in terms of building those core understandings of what framing problems as a system is and what framing a systemic intervention is and ideas around reorientation it's not all about the market we're actually going to need these mixed hybrid systems uh, for multiple purposes. And I, can I just say too, I think that that shifting from the linear thinking is, you know, one of the most important elements is involving Indigenous voices in the discussions around food systems. It's, uh, you know, and Paulina who preceded us just had some amazing ideas around the importance of integrating those voices in because the system thinking for our traditional owners is is a, is a natural thing it's a, it's within their being and i think you know without those indigenous voices in the food system we we struggle to think in a in a circular way and i, I 
that's one of the recommendations from our report is to just really prioritise those voices. And, you know, the emerging Indigenous food industry in the Northern Rivers is is seeking out land to grow Davidson plums and lemon myrtle and finger limes and all of these amazing native foods. Um, they're dying to get out there and start growing it and they're not finding the land they need, they're not finding the government support they need. So I think um, that's absolutely crucial. Well, that's a positive note to perhaps... Uh uh, have a quick wrap, wrap to some questions. Does anyone have any questions? Thanks for uh, presenting your work and thanks for doing this important part of the work. I'm a food systems scholar um, currently at CSIRO and I feel, you know, I've been, I'm exposed often, you know, to food system transition discussions and conversation and forums and so on. But I feel that um, in this space we are still very naive and we're missing <laughs> a lot of the... Uh, uh, we're missing the opportunity to explore a lot of the invisible forces. So as, San, as Dana said at the beginning, you know, food production starts before, you know, uh, the actual <laughs> food production stages at the farm uh, level. Uh, she talked about the inputs, uh, the agricultural inputs, but I just wanted to know how exposed you are in your communities, in your work about the other invisible forces. So, for example, I know that um, farmers that are interested in agroecological practices sometimes risk not to uh, have an insurance or a loan because uh, obviously, you know, banks and insurances influence what farmers are going to produce. Another big uh, trend is the use of e-technologies, the use of big data. And, uh, uh, you know, talking about partnership, I feel uh, based on my knowledge, the trends are going all the other way around, you know, with more access to uh, big data or the use of these technologies, farmers going to translate just in labor uh, people on their land because they would not have access to the algorithm, etc. And, you know, we know that John Deere, Monsanto, they're actually redirecting their business models towards big data more than um, inputs in the agricultural processes. So how present are this discussion in our communities because you know we're missing the big elephant in the room as you know more and more for this for example big data and also with the use of big data there's an increased digital divide across the globe global north country will have even more competitive advantages over global south countries and so on and intra-country uh, digital divide is increasing as well are you exposed at that or are we still in a very naive uh, utopian food system sustainability <laughs> space um, shall I jump in there? I would say definitely naive. Um, some really great points around, yes. So, for instance, I found that when I, I tried really hard to get a representative sample of what are labelled regenerative farmers in Australia and the majority of them are have um, inherited their family farm, they are large-scale um cattle farmers so we're talking about in terms of invisible forces we're talking about often settler colonialist legacies which is um, a very challenging space in and of itself we're talking about people who typically don't have a lot of debt there is a narrative around you know people switch to regenerative agriculture because they couldn't afford to do anything else but when you look at the literature that tends to actually be one of the biggest barriers is you lose a lot of your productivity and your profitability for a number of years so how do you afford it? The people can afford it are the ones who are already wealthy, even if it's just in their assets. And yeah, so then there are elements in terms of finance. Um, NAB is one that comes to mind of that are financing um, sustainability-based loans and looking at 
other aspects of their asking farmers what they're doing to maintain sustainability on their farm from a risk perspective. But I would not say that that's the case for small scale. The few farmers that I could find um, who are, yes, small scale and describe themselves as regenerative, access to land, and this is really to what Fiona's example just before of those native food systems was a huge problem. Land has become capital in Australia. It has become an in form of investment and land grabbing is a huge issue, not to mention that, yeah, some it's a bit of the classic, you know, equity issue. Some are getting very rich off it, while others um, can barely get a foot in the market. And yeah, so those are some of the invisible forces. And then again, you look at beyond the farm gate, where does that, it's not just, you know, what happens before you start growing, where does that food go? Australia is an export oriented market. 70% of our beef and lamb is exported overseas. So we, those, these farmers are selling into large scale commodity markets. And that's not necessarily something entirely in their control, but nor do, though, nor do they really talk about it because those farmers say, I have too many cattle to sell at a local farmer's market. And to be honest, I don't really want to spend my Saturday at a market store, which is probably fair enough. They've already worked hard for five days of the week um, or all the time really. But there's a lack of engagement with it. The, the farmers I speak to tend to unfortunately kind of go, I've basically solved it by sequestering some soil carbon, by you know growing cattle better and therefore I've solved climate change and we can all just continue on as normal. There's not a lot of engagement outside of AFSA and outside of some of those smaller scale farms um, with issues of capital, often with issues of colonialism. Data doesn't come in a lot. It's, I don't think they need it as much when it comes to these cattle operations, but I know in the cropping space, that's definitely what's happening. It's becoming increasingly mechanized um, and increasingly data oriented. And I suspect when we get into the carbon um, farming space as that expands in soil that will also start to come in as well so no I would say the answer is they are ex on the whole naive or politically flat as someone described it to me. <laughs> are there any other questions? Yeah. The, the gentleman up the back I think sorry had his hand up just they will come to you. Oh, oh I'm sorry <laughs> far away. <laughs> okay I have two questions I think I, I, I'm Sushila from Nepal uh, we do have like with small scale farmers, large scale farmers with food system is migration of the youth that has led the farmlands to be barren and uh, food security definitely comes into consideration. Another thing is, do you face that during the studies or during this crisis, what migration does for the food system? Another question is using, we just conducted one of the studies with biofinancing for UNDP regarding using the nutrients, I mean, phosphorus, nutrient um, chemicals in fertilizing farm, farms. And you mentioned about the phosphorus. How good, or does the farmers, we don't have, the farmers don't have access, especially the small farmers in the mid hills don't have access to all these uh, fertilizers and the supply is very less. Uh, compared to our, when we did our study, the impact was quite less, except for the maize and potatoes where they use the highest amount of chemical fertilizer that could hamper the health system. So it will be good to know like the importance of phosphorus in our country so people can the small farmers can have access to that and ensure that the government are pressurized to increase phosphorus than other 
chemical fertilizers. So what would you suggest and how can we resolve those issues with the small farmers? Thank you. Great, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I 100% followed the, the nature of the question, whether it was around um, small-scale farmers, um, their accessibility to fertilisers, or whether it was around how do we encourage government support or whether it was around the, the productivity gains from using fertilisers. I wonder if someone could just clarify the nature of the question. The, the first two, Dana, so access to fertilisers and then the governance in, of fertilisers. Yeah, so, I mean, last year the, the president, President of the World Farmers Association said that the biggest question on farmers' lips was the accessibility and the affordability of fertilisers. And um, absolutely, that was with small-scale um, fertilisers in um, developing and emerging economies, but also in um, in rich nations as well. It's it's been a, a global, worldwide um, phenomenon. And I don't think it's um, it's okay that we have um, business as usual that we're relying on these current um, globalised markets where small perturbations in um, in one country can, can affect the entire system. Because as I mentioned, we had that 400% price spike um, last year of fertilisers and it's already um, unaffordable for, for farmers. So um, I do think that's why we need to, to look at diversifying sources of nutrients. Um, obviously, that's not just um, in terms of purchasing fertilisers, but the way the, you know, the land is, is managed as well and soil testing to understand exactly um, what it needs. But if we can, and, you know, this idea of investing in renewable fertilisers, it's only one of many important pathways that needs to happen, but I think it's an incredibly important one and one that we don't talk about enough because it can help um, provide those local domestic markets rather than, you know, relying on these um, import markets. And, Obviously, um, some countries have used um, fertilizer subsidies to help um, farm to help support farmers. And in some parts, I think, like in, in Sri Lanka, that's been you know two to three percent of GDP. So it's a very expensive and often inefficient way to provide um, support to farmers. Um, but absolutely, we need to um, find better ways. And I think by creating local um, renewable fertilisers, that's one way to provide more accessible and ideally affordable, um, sustainable fertilisers to small-scale farmers. Thank you. I might answer the youth uh, out-migration question and then pass over to Dana for the nutrients question. So, I mean, enormous challenge, particularly in emerging economies and developing contexts in terms of that, you know, that mentality of agriculture is for the poor. It's, it's a poor person's job let's get a better job in the cities i guess two potential potential positive lenses is to really start thinking of urban food systems and urban agriculture and food skills and jobs don't necessarily have to be farm based so we're thinking about future skills and workforces for youth willing to think of all these trends that are emerging like e-technologies for food production and distribution and monitoring and the finance of food these are potentially big employers where people can still be involved in agriculture but in um using the, the skills of emerging emerging markets and uh, emerging trends but also focus on then i think the fao this week published a report looking at rural and urban interactions and the implications of growing urban centers and what that might mean for urban cities and i know fiona and dana have done a lot of work in that space as well to really start thinking of urban food systems as a potential leverage points to re-energize and revitalize ways of growing food that aren't in rural areas 
and they might be much more smaller scale, but might still provide some of that, those food cultures that are so important to, to many communities. And protected agriculture and closed loop systems at a small scale is really empowering a lot of uh, producers and community urban food movements um, as well. Hi, Donna. Thank you for your uh, comments earlier. And I, I, you just raised a couple of issues that um, the small, the issue of small perturbations and diversity of sources. And I wonder if you have anything uh, to add about the recent discovery of a very large deposit of phosphate rock in Norway. Absolutely. Um, I can't see the audience, but do I recognize that voice as Chris Lyon? You certainly do, yeah. <laughs> How are you, Chris? Nice, nice to see you and hear from you. Um, you know, I'm glad you raised that because um, I think it's an important discussion we need to have. So if others in the room aren't aware, um, across the media we're seeing that um, company Neue Mining in Norway has discovered um, billions of tonnes of um, phosphate in Norway. Um, does this change the, the picture for phosphorus? Really important question because it changes some things and it doesn't change other things. So obviously if there's more tonnes in the ground than we previously thought, um, that is great in terms of longevity of, of phosphate. Um, also in terms of um, the geopolitics and diversifying and giving Europe, because um, as we know, Europe is almost entirely dependent on imported phosphates and that has huge implications for food security. So if there's some in Norway, amazing, that's fantastic. Now, what it doesn't change is, as we know from a, a food security and a sustainability perspective, um, the tons in the ground isn't necessarily the best um, measure or, or indicator of um, what will be accessible and available in a farmer's um, hand to produce the food that we need to produce. It doesn't address this issue we were just talking about of farmer accessibility that already a billion farmers can't afford it. It's still supporting the same thing. It's still mobilising more phosphate from the earth's crust um, into the environment, contributing to that widespread pollution, um, as we know. So it's sort of not changing the fundamental sustainability challenges that we know we need to transform. So it, it, it does, you know, it's a few little ticks, but there, it doesn't change the underlying um, insecurity and unsustainable situation. Is this working? Yeah. So my name is Andy Hall. I work for CSIRO and I work on innovation in and of agri-food systems. So an observation and a question. Uh, the observation, agri-food systems have always been transforming and will continue to do so with or without us. The question is, how can we change the direction of that transformation? So therefore, we're dealing with a, a deeply political project. And I think that's come out in some of the presentations, but we need to keep that front and centre of our mind. And, and with that in view, I'm hearing a narrative coming out which is about... Um, community-led, civil society-driven uh, agri-food system transformations. A lot of the examples are about that, and it's, it's, it's nice to see the power of those community-driven things. But my question is, what does that mean for the role of public agencies, policy at, at federal and state level, uh, public research agencies like ours, Surely there's a role for us, but what is it? What's the implication of this for what we do and how we do it? Um, I can talk briefly to that. Um, the I suppose the what we are seeing is a little bit of action on on the on the public sector's behalf. Uh, New South Wales government have recently done a production into uh, an inquiry into New South into food production in New South Wales, and there's actually a federal inquiry happening at the moment on food security. So we're starting to see some movement there. I suppose. Um, 
what we've found is it's the it's the silo mentality I, I guess of the way food is viewed from a public sector perspective I mean you have these um, these silos of, of of agriculture of land use of public health of um, you know the hospitality sector and um, I think unfortunately we're still operating within these uh, these silos and these individualized ways of think thinking and that's often linked to a linear way of thinking about a food supply chain as opposed to considering the whole as a system so I think definitely from a regional perspective one of our recommendations was around uh, creating a um, form of governance having a, a food policy council in the northern rivers that's run at a regional level that connects those individuals and connects those citizens and those uh, local food champions to the the actors in the food system and getting them in a room in a participatory way in a collaborative way to have those discussions and though that discussion and what comes out of that strategic visioning for the region can then be connected into public policy into the department of primary industries into csiro and having those you know that feedback loop between the community and and, and the public policy can i just comment on that um, and, and in relation to your question um it is about power and politics isn't it and we want to transform in a regenerative direction of oh, that's and that's a difficult word in government so we want to transform in you know more closed loop sustaining ways I, I just think for public agencies and government agencies it's really hard to um structure the conversation and have it heard that we've actually got parallel and quite diverging systems at play in parallel and at the moment possibly one of them dominates inordinately yeah so it's about recognizing the parallel systems um yeah and and, and having strategies for each perhaps the other question i was going to ask <laughs> and this is the blue sky one and, and welcome input from the audience as well looking back a decade 2014 australia had do you remember that we had the, the angry summer that a particular prime minister didn't acknowledge and then we sort of had a decade of something um, and then in the last few years we've had you know just a feral few years 2019 worst drought on record T 2019 20 those hideous bushfires and tragic loss of of land biodiversity and human trauma and where are we heading now we've just had floods and who knows maybe we're heading into an El Nino so looking back a decade and from where we've come to look forward a decade what would be the one one or two great potential great potentialities that you see in your sphere that you think we could have realized in 10 I'll years I'll be happy time. to go first I'm going to make this a little bit personal but in 10 years um, I've been on my own personal journey of owning land in the northern rivers and attempting to grow a lot of my own food and it's been quite a roller coaster of discovering how difficult it is to grow food but something I have done a lot of is gardening with my children so in 10 years I'd like to see my sons as teenagers um, having a significant vegetable patch in their backyards that they are, you know, growing their own food, engaging with their own food, having conversations around food. And I think, um, you know, we haven't talked much about the importance of educating children as to the importance of where their food is coming from. So I want to be gardening with my teenage sons in 10 years. So I might go complete opposite scale instead of from household to global. <laughs> 
And in 10 years, 2033, so that'll be whatever new sustainable development goals get defined once we don't achieve the sustainable development goals by 2030. I would like to see uh, the board of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation f funding some of the very radical alternatives in food systems that not just us, but everyone's discussing because they have substantial power agencies and philanthropic groups and finance groups like that in creating change for good or for bad. So it'd be really great to see diverse types of investments. Yeah, I'm actually so slightly in response to your question around, I think what I would like to see is more integrated governance. That is ag, health, um, economic and environment departments working together on integrated food policy um, and starting to, and I think to your point, Anthea, what, what's the dominant system? Being brave as governors. I used to work at Agriculture Victoria, so I know how not brave we often are. Um, to be brave to sort of challenge some of those dominant narratives and to start to really treat food and land and fibre as common goods in Australia and water as well. And starting to, yeah, integrate those, yeah, integrated governance and having that bioregional scale really fundamental within that, to me, I would see that as a strong solution. Um, and the, yeah, the key goals of resilience essentially, and that resilience encompassing both socially and ecologically. I was going to say almost a, a very similar thing. I would like to see food treated as a public good, food and phosphorus, because at the moment they're left to the market. This is not okay. We are never going to get food systems transformation that way. Um, so if we've heard it said before, we need a Ministry of Food um, and we need to take that very seriously. So I'll just leave it there. Thank you. And can I ask each? Can I ask all of you to thank each of our panellists for, to, for today's discussion? And I'd also like to send out a very special thank you to Fiona for rustling us all together to get this panel together. So thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. 